Welcome to the Western Baul podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the podcasts is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, The Possibility of Inner Freedom Through Recognizing Ego's Insubstantiality. The talk was given by Vijay Fedorshak on September 7, 2019, in Prescott, Arizona. Vijay is a psychotherapist and author of Shadow on the Path and Father and Son. He has organized events, including conferences, Baul Theater Company performances, and the Saturday Night Talk series on spiritual teaching and practice. Vijay Fedorshak. In spiritual life, there's like good news and bad news. I, I mean, it seems to me like the bad news comes first. But then when you kind of, like kind of, like really sit with it for a while, you wrestle with it and it, it kind of set, settles, then there's the good news. I, I personally think that the biggest opportunity that we have in life is to study ourselves. <clears throat> I mean... I think most of us, we didn't grow up with that um, message. We just kind of grew up with parents who were really well-meaning and, you know, helped us out as best they could. But most parents didn't, with rare exception, didn't have much, um, you know, really understanding of traditional spiritual teaching and how that might apply. Uh, So... And we grow up, and for whatever reason, some of us kind of stumble upon it, and it just makes more sense than maybe the religious tradition that we grew up in. At least that was my experience. So, please, anything that I say is going to be, like, speaking from my experience, I'm not expecting that you would agree with everything. We can certainly talk about things. That's not the point. The point is to actually think about some stuff that might be useful. So, let's see. Source material, I just really need to credit, give credit where credit is way due. I mean, this is not coming from me. This is coming from um, a really significant Western teacher who you may never have known. His name is Lee Lazarick. He was my teacher. He died in 2010. And from a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, one of the most... Uh, respected Tibetan teachers of this time, uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. A lot of our um, understanding of the spiritual path has been imported. There, there is like a legitimate Christian tradition, for sure. But a lot of what we uh, are considering, those of us on a spiritual path, has to do with, has some Eastern flavor to it. So my teacher was particularly good and taking the principles that were practiced in Eastern spirituality and making them very accessible to Westerners, which is how I happened upon the path. Um, You know, I was probably 21, 21 years old in 1976, 
And I had heard of Lebasowit. I'd heard about him because he was a very well, uh, you know, very much respected teacher of principles of mind. It's a particular course that was um, uh, available on the East Coast and I think probably out here too at the time. But he saw the limitations of it and um, really began studying traditional spiritual principle and uh, like a whole kind of uh, circumstance developed whereby he started teaching after having some realization He'd like to call it a shift in context or something like that. And he has an Eastern teacher. You know, I, I'm married, I have a family, I have a job, I'm a, a therapist at a residential treatment facility, which is an amazing opportunity to kind of practice with all kinds of energies. We'll talk a little bit about this and hopefully to, to serve in some ways. The formation of ego. Well, to me, there's no way to be, to avoid, like, really looking directly at the way things develop for us if you want to um, really study the path and study yourself. So my teacher, he, um, for people who were interested and so green as me, I was not looking for a guru or a spiritual path or anything like that. I didn't know what I was looking for, but I was troubled. And I was looking for, for like some direction that made sense. I got way more than I had bargained for. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I just wanted to kind of learn how to be, get a stronger ego or how to cope and be more solid as a person. But what I got really just pulled the rug out of what I thought I was looking for. He did a study course, 12 tapes, like on basic teaching. And uh, how I got involved in this was by listening to and, and studying that early, very early material. And the, the, the things that I'm going to talk about now for the next few minutes were the first thing on the very first tape. Let's start at the beginning. There are no concepts in the womb. There's just sensation. Many of you probably have children. You've seen at at the birth how things change radically. There's like no separation. It seems that way. If if you were ever going to say that someone was in union with the universe, a kind of a baby is like in that state. Well, in the womb, it's like that's uh, completely the case, it seems. And then the baby starts coming down. And the baby crowns and comes out. And it is such a shock. It's got to be. We had two home births and like that. And people are around and they're smiling and laughing and clapping or whatever in a hospital. It's there's bright lights and all the thing that goes on with that, forceps and whatever. But uh, for the child, it's got to be a huge shock. And Lisa said that from, a, from a, a circumstance in which there are no concepts, 
concept one gets set. Survival. I could die. Everything else is laid upon concept one. I mean, that we learn. Relationships, work, money, food, sex, everything gets laid on top of concept one. Now, most of us go through our day like decades later. For some of us, quite a few decades at this point. And, you know, we don't think of it in those terms so much. But look a little more closely. I mean, I see my day like something happens a little out of the ordinary. I run into somebody at a supermarket that I don't really want to talk to. You know, there's some self-protective thing that happens, like pretty constantly. Like, what am I protecting? I mean, maybe that's not the best example. But if uh, I'm at work and, you know, I'm fine, I'm solid. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and I feel like I'm, I'm good at it like that. But something happens and some grievance gets filed. That hasn't happened to me. But, you know, like even that hint of that, even a hint of that. And it's like, if I self-observe and I check my internal state, you know, there's worry, there's concern, you know? Like, I wouldn't say necessarily I could die, but basically it's about survival. I mean, it is. My, my father, rest his soul, he, he, you know, he grew up in the Depression. So everybody has a different form of ego that says, this is what I need to survive. This is what I need to survive. It's different for every person. Like my dad, you know, he grew up during the Depression and like that. Last of 13 kids, and, you know, two of them died uh, and, and childbirth or very soon thereafter. And uh, all the kids, his mother died, his father died, eight years old, 12 years old. And uh, he went into an orphanage. And all his siblings had, you know, flown the nest and gone to build their own lives. And he's kind of left alone. You know, like survival was very uh, present for him. You know, he took off from Western Pennsylvania, came to New York where I grew up, got a job as a policeman and really tried to do well for his family. But he, you know, what he needed for survival was security. Security in terms of a job, security in terms of money. I mean, you know, that was the focus of his life, you know, for sure. I mean, where I work, you know, these kids, they're amazing. You can't believe what they've been through. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe some of you have been through that, but it doesn't look that way to me. I mean, you know, if parents abandon their kids when they're, like, very young, fathers, that's almost the norm where I work, but mothers... That really messes with you. Like, that gives you a certain message. And your ego, like, is crushed in some ways. This is just to make the point of everybody's form of ego needs something in particular. Some of these moms, 
need a man to be in relationship with. I mean, otherwise they can't function. They probably grew up without a father in their, in their lives, my guess would be. I have one kid whose mother like, gave up her parental rights, and I believe that it's because the stepfather just didn't want to have anything to do with the kid, and the mother sided with the stepfather, and voila. We all have some form of ego that has something that it needs to survive, that it thinks that it needs. Lee said that if we uh, don't see and work with our survival reactions, like so for me, uh, you know, in college like this, I, uh, in graduate school, actually, um, I saw that, you know, I had kind of inherited some of my father's dynamics and that survival for me was about security and about money. Um, but I also began to see more deeply, which is why I got onto this path, because it's not just about things. It's in very subtle ways. Like, I'm a nice person. I need acknowledgement. I want people to shake their head, yes. If I didn't get that, like, you know, there would be some survival reaction in me. Like, I need that. I need a kind of validation or substantiation of myself. I am saying this not because, you know, to confess. I'm saying this because this is the way, this is the way things work. That applies to me, but it applies, I think, to everybody. Fill in the blanks. Like how ego functions and what, it, what it's about. I want to really talk about, like, this idea of ego as we go along. You know, there's a kind of subtle suffering in this. In the Buddhist tradition, they talk about, like, all life is suffering. Something. Like, that's the base that you start from. I think it's about this kind of idea. Lee said that if, if you don't see that in yourself and you just are reacting your whole life, trying to make things work and trying to fit, solve these problems so that everything is safe and secure and like it works out, and then you're a machine. You're a machine just constantly being, you're like a pinball. Everything that goes on in life is a threat. Initially, I asked him, I told him what some of my psychological issues were to my perspective, from my perspective. And he said, well, you could work on that and, you know, strengthen your ego. But it's, that's never going to satisfy. Like, if you really want to get to the heart of the matter, there are these kind of books. And some of the things that I want to talk about tonight are things that were in these kind of, these kind of books for your consideration. He said that there's only one thing to do about this principle of survival. That's concept one for all of us, I would say. It's spiritual life and some kind of work on self. But to understand that, given that we've imported these traditions from the East, maybe we don't have the deepest real understanding of what that is exactly. Like, where do we start from? Where are we starting from right now? <clears throat> what are we working with? 
like, where are we going? Those are some things that Trungpa Rinpoche said are important to consider as we embark on this. So I want to talk a little bit more about this. And so now I would like to just talk for a few minutes about Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. I am not a Tibetan Buddhist, but I really appreciate like the different spiritual traditions, especially the consideration about how they might apply in this time and place. Trungpa Rinpoche says that he talks about the formation of the ego. So now consider this, this, these concepts. He says that at first, and I mean, he received training in Tibetan like this, and I think Tibetan monks do receive this kind of training, about the insubstantiality of ego. I mean, we take that to be so solid. I mean, a given I would like to call that into question a little bit tonight. In, in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology, uh, the ego is a creation of five skandhas. Skandhas, what is this? A collection of phenomena that slowly come together to form this ego that becomes airtight, and we just assume that that's the way it is. The first skanda phenomena is form. So we start off, as I mentioned, in the womb, in a, like a state of, like, let's say, nirvana, of like oneness with what is. Just sensation, no concept, and we're kind of like floating around or whatever. And according to t- Tibetan Buddhism, uh, we, we start to panic. We start to need to kind of hold on to something. You know, we're floating, we're floating, we're kind of spinning around here in open space. And we start to get anxious. And so that is the birth of ignorance. Not ignorance like stupid. Like ignorance like, like losing touch with who you are. So what happens is we start to create forms. There's something outside of us. It's the birth of duality, I and the other. Second skanda is feeling. So now that we're starting to do this, we learn to substantiate ourselves by feeling like what's going on with the other. So like feelings can be uh, seductive, or they can be threatening, <clears throat> or they can be neutral. I'm attracted to it, or I'm like scared or repulsed, or pushed away, and, or like it's just neutral. Ego begins to form this way, according to Tibetan Buddhism. Third skanda, or phenomena, is perception or impulse. So now that we have these feelings of being seductive or threatening or neutral, like we're drawn to them. So we go toward this, you know, things that are seductive or we um, withdraw from, from or push away things that are threatening or we're indifferent to things that are neutral. So with each additional skanda, as we develop, 
ego becomes more and more fixed, such that we forget where we even came from. We forget what even started the whole thing. And the fourth skanda is concept. Trump Rinpoche says, to uh, truly deceive ourselves, uh, we need intellect, you know, to protect and deceive ourselves, we, we need intellect to get into the picture too. So we start to label and categorize things. Oh, this is a stool. We all understand the stool, and we're all together on that page that this is a stool, so it must be a stool. And um, it's obvious that we're all separate egos, so we must be separate egos. We must be separate, you know, completely separate people. The fifth and last skanda is called consciousness, where it kind of all comes together. Everything's just kind of... It's the amalgamation of skandhas. And the whole thing is secured. And we don't question. In fact, when we get into spiritual life, that's the place that we come from in um, studying or considering the spiritual path from this place of uh, the, the skandhas having uh, come together and been amalgamated. And, and, and from that place, it's really not possible to, under, to, true, to truly understand the spiritual path. It, it's useful, though, to study it and to practice how it most feels right to do so because the universe is moving and it's bringing us where we need to go. We may not be able to really understand it, although a lot of people feel that they do. And then there are those who really do. Despite all the scandals that you hear like about in many different organizations and that occur for many different teachers, is there some truth to this? I've mentioned that in these talks, I'm not selling like uh, a point of view that I want you to buy. I would like to, st uh, to bring considerations that for me seem real and we can talk about them. I'm not saying that, you know, I understand all these things. But as I mentioned, everybody who speaks up here has really worked with these ideas. Hey, something else to think about is that, I don't know, I got a, a friend. I don't know if I can call him a friend. He's really quite, quite an amazing man, an Ayurvedic physician that, you know, I've just had a little bit of contact with. I um, really like the guy. He's always got great books to recommend. And uh, I, whenever I see him, I kind of ask him, you know, anything else? And uh, I don't know, he's, he's lately been talking about quantum physics, and it's me like, wow. I mean, you know, I read, I read about to page seven of this book, and it's like, oh, I don't know. But um, there were a few principles that I, I thought, like, actually fit here that were pretty, pr pretty notable. One is that, we are made, I mean, in terms of physics, we are made of atoms. Atoms. And quantum mechanics is about, uh, you know, atomic particles and subatomic particles. You remember this from physics in high school? 
protons and neutrons and the electrons, and you, you know, you got your electrons floating around there and all that, right? But actually, we are 99.9999999, I forget, I think it's 12 nines. Empty space. Empty space. Like, really? How is that possible? I mean, so freaking solid. I mean, like, really, you got your protons and neutrons in the middle and the nucleus. You got the electrons kind of whirling around. Um, if you took, I just read this, if you took a basketball and, like, blew up an atom to that size, you would not be able to see the nucleus. You would not be able to see any of these particles, protons, electrons, neutrons. So if we're empty space, um, maybe this is a little off topic, but not really. I mean, if you took, <coughs> you know, if we're 99.9% empty space, why? And that wall is too. Why can't I put my hand through this wall? I mean, why does it, why, why does it pump? when I push my finger into it. You need to separate the molecules. Mm-hmm. To separate them. To do that. The really? yogis can Well, do maybe that. someone will figure that out how to do that. Sometimes. The yogis supposedly can do that. Maybe they Some. can. I, you, know, I, you know, since I've gotten on board with this teaching, I really believe that the laws of, the, of our universe, or the laws of our universe, but that doesn't mean that some other things might not be possible. Well, it turns out that the answer is that in the human body, there are what? I wrote this today. Seven times, what was it? Like, oh, yeah. Seven and 27 zeros mm-hmm. after it, like atoms in your body. So that's a lot. About a billion, seven billion, billion, billion. I never knew how to read a number that big. But the thing is that as the electrons, like, in the atoms in my hand get closer to this wall, they come closer to the electrons in the atoms that are in the wall, and they repel each other. And so I feel as if it's solid. As if. I consider myself solid, but how solid am I? When I die, things will decompose and there will be a change in this form what is solid here I don't think it's going to be solid there so what am I I can give some conceptual answer to that but to know that to know that that is what I think the spiritual traditions are really about Like kind of pointing in a direction. So, a little bit of interlude. I heard that no one can keep their attention really for more than like 18 minutes. We've already gone a half an hour. So it's time for a, a, a brief conversation. There's a lot of things I would really like to talk about tonight. Like, have you ever experienced real freedom? It seems like when... Ego is fixed. Our minds just, is it just me? Our minds just go on and on and on and on. And nothing can get in, really. We're thinking, thinking, thinking. About what? 
me, me, me. Uh, this is not bad. This is just the way it is. Have you ever, has that ever just fallen away for you? And you've just been in a state of freedom. In meditation. Mm-hmm. All the time? Sometimes? Sometimes. Rarely? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. I know for me, it's like... <laughs> that like, like, I, that I said monkey for, mind. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have to stop that. I sit for 50 minutes every day, or just about every day. And, you know, my mind will go. And then sometimes... We're just here. I mean, they say that everybody has Buddha mind. Everybody. Has what? Has what? Buddha mind. Oh. Mm-hmm. Everybody is enlightened. I mean, now. That exists for us now. We're just not in touch with it. Mm-hmm. It's like occluded by the discursive mind that just won't quit. I understand you can't find your off switch. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Kind of. Kind of. Even when things are going pretty good, we're just kind of cruising along. Something is going to get you. Something is going to get you. And then, you know, survival. I mean, that's what, what it is. We tend to look at things like this as if there's something wrong. Maybe not. Growth. Yeah, maybe this is, we get exactly what we need. But a lot of times we miss it. We miss it. We think, like, right away I want to fix this thing. It's like, whoa, breathe. Let's be with this. It doesn't mean that you don't do something about it. Can I? I mean, you know, the place where he works, you know, this, he, he works with this, you know, he's got a boss who just is like, ooh, it's really, it's, it's tough. I mean, that is the reason, the biggest reason why people leave their jobs because of difficulties with their boss. And, you know, you were saying that you, had, you were using it for your work. Fantastic. But, like, if you can kind of, you know, if it just is like enough already, uh, you know, you've used it however you can use it, but it just feels like you want to do, you need to do something else. So you want to do, yeah, of course. If it's something that you really need, it'll come back at you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's like that for everybody, you know, for all of us. Okay. Anybody else? Freedom? Nah. Don't... I, I have um, had experiences as a, in the realm of improvisation. Yes. Where there isn't a script, there's really nothing planned, but with a group of people, or sometimes as an individual, something emerges out of what seems like nothing. And there have been experiences that I've had where in that realm of improvisation, that I feel totally in some kind of flow that feels ecstatic. Gotcha. Want to do one now? You know Alan Arkin, don't you? You've heard of yeah. the, the actor? Fantastic actor, I think, I think, anyway. He came here to town a couple of years ago, and he did one workshop. Oh, my God, I signed up. And um, he was telling stories, but... 
you know, we did improv. And, you know, it's painful. It's painful when you're self-conscious and you don't know what to do. And then you do something and it like really, like everybody's just sitting there like, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it works on you, on your ego, you know. But he was so accepting and encouraging and supportive for people to kind of step out and try. And he said that if you've ever had the kind of experience that you're describing, I think, you never forget it. You never forget it. I mean, that's why, you know, people act, is because they've had that kind of free exp uh, uh, freedom where they've been out of their own way and it's just kind of come through. I don't know. It sounds so cliche. I hate to say it. The universe comes through. I call it the spiritual download coming from your higher self. Well, that's very articulate. It's a wonderful experience. Yeah, it is. It is. And it happens. Of course. Of course, it happens to us all. Yes. Yes. First, the bad news. Okay, so this is part two. That was part one, the formation of ego. This is part two, principles of non-dualism and ego. Sounds academic. <laughs> Spiritual freedom that we long for, I mean, we long for something, but I don't think that we really know, most, many of us, most of us, know what it is that we really long for. We want something, happiness. But the things that we're trying to, that we're trying to get, no specific is ever going to make it. It's not. Like, what will? You know, spiritual freedom that's longed for is the realization, I propose, um, of non-dualism. Non-dualism is a mature state of consciousness in which the, the, the dichotomy between I and other is transcended. It's the mature state of consciousness in which the dichotomy um, of I and other is transcended. We, we listen to that from the space of a separate, assumed separate ego. And I don't think we can really get it, but it, again, it points in a direction. This term, non-dualism, is derived from Advaita Vedanta, which is a school of Hindu philosophy. But the thing about it is, descriptions of it are found in all the traditions. In Buddhism, there's this con concept of emptiness. In Islamic Sufism, there's this concept of fana, of dying before you die. Ego death, which sounds like, oh my God, but might not be what we uh, interpret that to mean. Because it's always going to be ego. Always. It, it just loses its control or its dominance. And in, in, Christian, in Christianity, there's this idea of mystical union. I mean, if you read a mystical union in Christianity, yeah, if any of you read, when I grew up, we read, the, you know, we read about the Christian saints. And um, they didn't really go into what that mystical union meant at all. It was in something entirely different than I understand it to be now. But there is this idea of, of living in a state of oneness. Like, how crazy is this? But then again, 
Like, how crazy is the universe as it is? Wormholes, black holes. These days, in my field, we want to follow evidence-based practices, logical, linear things that you do this, and then it gets here, and then this happens. I'm sorry. It doesn't seem to me like the universe works this way. The idea of um, non-duality is that you are the one incarnates as you. You are you, but you also are all this. That's such a mind-blowing concept, and people can just kind of take that and run wild with it from the perspective of ego, like standing on the shore, I am God. (laughs) That is different than the organic understanding of what that means and the responsibility that goes with that. Because if you realize that you are everyone and everything, then all you do is live your life serving other aspects of yourself. Again, that's, you know, a high ideal, a high contact, a high uh, concept. And it it really, some people feel like they can do that. But I would question that. I think from the the, the, um, place that we come from, of assuming a separate identity, I don't think you can. I mean, I think that you can you can try, and uh, but it's not quite the same. It doesn't quite have the same flavor or context. I want to read something from. Uh, uh, like I said, we're going to start off with bad news. This is from, and I still can't pronounce this, the name of this Upanishad. Like this particular Upanishad was one of the earlier ones from, like, I think the 7th or 8th century B.C., I'm going to try it here, called the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. Just a couple lines. The ignorant, ignorant of who you really are, do not know him, meaning the self with a capital S. This was from a time when they wouldn't say him and her. They would just say him, I think. The ignorant do not know him, for behind the names and forms he remains hidden. Hidden pretty, hidden in ourselves. The perfection which is the self is the goal of all beings, with a capital S. Where there is consciousness of the self, individuality is no more. Yet, yet, I would say, like, to understand that requires a lot of work. I'm just going to kind of name some people. These people have been, like, we know about them because somebody wrote about them. And what they said was this kind of stuff. But they, it's, it, there was some sense that they were actually living it. Like in India, like... Um, even in the last hundred years, Mayor Baba, Shirdi Sai Baba, Ananda Mayama, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, Neem Karoli Baba, who was Ram Dass's guru, um, so many more in the so many more in the Hindu tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, Dilgo Kyense Rinpoche, Trungpa Rinpoche, who I referred to, the 16th Karmapa. 
uh, maybe the Dalai Lama. I mean, God, if he can handle what the Chinese are throwing at him, my God, he must be enlightened. Mm-hmm. Um, in Sufism, I mean, Kabir, Rumi, Irina Tweedy, who you may not have heard about, much more recent person, and so many people that we haven't heard about, heard of. In, in the Indian tradition, Mirabai, and the Christian tradition, Jesus. Like, wow. I mean, if you, if you haven't read the Gospel of Thomas, didn't get into the, you know, the four big ones, didn't get in with the four big ones, but wow. He says some things about non-duality. I mean, really, when, uh, do you remember some of the things, some, some of the phrases? Um, when you make the two into one, and uh, I don't know, I can't remember, but it's really worth the read. Is it possible what you just said, uh, the union of the conscious physical and the higher energy that you really are before you were born? Together yeah, as one. I, I, I think the possibility of being a human is that we can live in that state, mm-hmm. you know, now. Like, that is possible. In other words, we, we flip over and give way to our higher self to come through and run our life, who we really are. Sure. But mm-hmm. this other so, guy yeah. This other little guy is really persistent. Mm-hmm. Really, really persistent. It's very undisciplined. Really, and in fact, it can even take on like the camouflage of being like enlightened. I mean, you know, I've known people who do that, and it's like, mm, I don't know, maybe. But it doesn't feel that way to me exactly, but okay. Yes, uh, sir. Thomas, I think, said something like, if I can translate it into Chinese, he says something like, when you yin the yang and you yang the yin, and the yin, the yin does the yang and the yang does the yin and you're one. Something like that. Uh, that sounds exactly right in Chinese. He <laughs> 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 didn't say in Chinese, but if he did, that's probably what it would say. Good. Is there anything else here that I want to read? Um, Anything that is not the self perishes. I mean, the bad news. I mean, because, like, we're not living the self. The self lives us, but somehow we're not actually in touch with that. What we are identified as, as us, that will perish. Okay, so we, we have these philosophies. You may, you may disagree. Um, this is Okay. And a lot of religions, the idea is that who you identify as is going to live on in an afterlife and will go to heaven. And I don't mean to disparage that because I don't know. But it feels to me like this is a deeper truth. And, and, and the idea that we will go on and live forever, um, you know, as this separate ego, personality, mind, body complex is another example of ego trying to survive by developing a philosophy that um, uh, keeps us from looking closer. So, 
Um, what I would like to do is I would like to review a few principles of ego. A lot of this may make sense to you, and some of it, I don't know. Uh, it's really useful for me to consider. It goes a little bit deeper for me. What keeps us from experiencing this open space is this idea that we have about ourselves that we need to try to perpetuate and substantiate. Why do we need so hard to try to perpetuate and substantiate the thing? Maybe because it doesn't really exist. Maybe because it's like smoke and mirrors. But we believe it so strongly. Number one. Ego sees everything as a threat to its survival. Okay, so we've covered that pretty good. But I do want to mention one more thing. I'm just working out today. You know, I go to a fitness club, and, you know, on the <laughs> screen everywhere is it like, you know, Donald Trump. And this is not political. It's just a, an example that's like just struck me before I came in here. For the last week, he's been, like, trying to defend his statement that Hurricane Dorian is going to, threaten Alabama. Going into, it's going into Alabama and he put up a false map, apparently a doctored map or whatever. But the thing is, that's not the point. I don't want to say anything about Donald Trump, it, it really, except that he's a good example, I think. He cannot be wrong. He cannot be wrong. He's got to be right about everything. Ego has got to be right. And so what I would ask you it's a rhetorical question, is how do you do that? You know, how do I do that? Oh, think for just a moment. Like, you know, how do you need to be right? Okay, with people that you know, just like, you know, in a kind of cursory way, I just met you guys, you know, and like, that's not a problem. We, you know, probably have a really nice conversation. But if I moved in with you, you know, like, I mean, you know, like, wow. It's like, <laughs> exactly. We could be nice for a day. But, like, if we got on for, like, three weeks, it would be like, get this guy out of here. You know, it's like, the people that you're closest to, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's where it kind of comes up. I mean, and it can be a little thing. Yeah. You left the sponge on the counter again. Yeah. <laughs> and it can be said in such a nice way. And there's freaking one. <laughs> no, I, I, I think you left the sponge on the table. Anyway, <laughs> ego, it, everything is a threat to its survival, and it's always got to be right. Ego is always searching. I don't know if you're present right now. You might be, but most of the time, check it out. Oh, and I forgot to mention, of course, in terms of great realizers from the different traditions, George Gurdjieff. So ego is always searching. I mean, you know, we're never, if you self-observe, which is how I kind of got thinking about this, because one of his, uh, pra- the practices that he recommended is self-observation. Like really looking at ourselves and studying ourselves without judgment, without trying to change anything, with ruthless honesty. And what else? Relaxed attention on the body. With relaxed attention on the body. Good practice. I mean, how can, can you, you know, I don't know how you can get much better than that. I mean, but what do you observe? I mean, in my, under, in my tradition, you observe, 
you see the unique ways that you try to survive. And you feel in your body, like when you're tight and when you're um, cramped up, like that's survival. Like you, 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 you reckon, you, and you own that. Okay, this has really got me here. Some force, you know, has got me and my ego is caught up in this. You just kind of are with that. And you learn about yourself by doing that. <clears throat> Organically, not just, you know, up here. So um, it's always searching. We're not really present most of the time. Check out your thinking. Like most of the time, our mind is somewhere else. Or, you know, I want need to take care of this, and then I can get this thing figured out, and then that will be good, and then I have to take care of that, mm-hmm. and then everything's going to be good. Mm-hmm. And then you can come back to the present. This is, this is real right now. Yeah. Okay, everything you're saying is kind of like um, you're, you're putting it all in a spiritual context, but have you heard of Dr. Janoff, the guy who did the primal screen therapy? John Lennon did it, did it with yeah, him, too. Yeah, he did. Yeah, that was in the 70s. So I just read a book of his that was written like 20 years later. So he described what you just said, where you are born, and something about the birth experience. He even... Yeah. He even... Um, stated that in his experience, when people relive birth experience, um, if you're allowed to fight your way out, you are born with an instinct to do and to, you know, your, your anxiety and your neuroses about the trauma of your birth manifest as being very active and, 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 you know, busy, busy, busy to calm your neuroses, because that's what the whole birth experience does to all of us. And, um, but if you're pulled out or, you know, cesarean or whatever, and you don't have that fight experience, you're going to be more of a flight type. You're going to be like Eeyore. You're going to be like, oh, what's the use? You know, you're going to give up easily. Oh and all this. So these neuroses, he claims, are set because of your birth experience. And then once you've got your neuroses established, because it is all about survival, said everything you do uh, in childhood, anything that happens to you can compound that neuroses. Mm -hmm. Said if you are able, he finds that if people are able to go back to those experiences and just feel those feelings and process them in a different context, because as an adult, it would be a totally different interpretation maybe, or just even being able to feel them and deal with them, he says eliminates can, can start to eliminate all the need that people have for being busy, for being successful, for being famous, for having money, for having a lot of material possessions, for, um, you know, needing drugs, needing pain medication, needing alcohol. All those things just disappear. And he also said, and I don't, I don't necessarily agree with this, but he said religion. Religion, you could just like the need for spirituality or religion or something beyond yourself disappears. Listen, we all, like in the course of our study of ourself and uh, of like different uh, approaches to working with yourself, come across like all kinds of things, some of which are really useful to us, you know, in a, in, for a period of time. And, and sometimes that changes into something else. And sometimes you stick with that and like that. Um, 
in my field, wow, there are like so many different therapeutic methods that people tout as being the answers. I won't mention them. But like, you know, like if you go, it's almost like a religious experience. Like people are like doing all this thing and this is all that you need to be like saved. I mean, you know, or cleared. And I don't think it's so linear. Some of the things that you're mentioning, they might be useful for you. Well, narcissism is like the extreme version of an ego and that they think comes from a messed up childhood. Oh, well, about that, I would like, that actually um, segues into something that I would like to say here. And that's that ego is identical. It's impossible to have a big ego or a small ego. There is just ego. And the principle is survival. The self-sense is, has a different flavor to it, but it's exactly the same. Some win... You know, winning is surviving. I mean, God, you know, like going to sudden death in um, pro football or, or, or whatever it is in any sport. Winning is like surviving. Losing is like dying. Mm. Some win by winning and some win by losing. You know, you have this, you develop this idea about yourself, right, starting from birth, but I think that it, that a lot of what happens afterwards probably has more of an impact on it. The way that you're, the messages that you receive, um, all that that goes on in the first few years of life. And we have kids at the place where I work where they have never succeeded at anything. You know, their self-esteem is like ground zero. And when they start to succeed a little bit, it's scary because what needs to survive is this idea that I am worthless. That's, that's, what they, that's what they're identified with. So when they get close to succeeding, like oftentimes when they're about ready to complete the program, and maybe they've earned a certain status, so to speak, and they're doing well, a lot of times, sabotage. Complete sabotage. I've got this one kid I'm thinking about from Texas. She got right up to the edge. I, I won't, of course, go into any details, but I could not believe what this girl did. Like a week from going home, we've been working on this. All she's talking about is wanting to go home. That's all she's talking about. She's going back to her mom. It seems like the mom's doing better, and this might actually work out. Complete drop-off. So she stays another month. After another month, we're right on the edge again. We're right on the precipice. Something else, something else. How could you, you know, it's like someone by winning, someone by losing. Ego vies for control, power, superiority, you know, and in close relationships, (coughs) we can see how that works in people out there. We project it on, like, you've, you know, Robert Mugabe. Right? He's the, uh, he was the dictator uh, in uh, the former Rhodesia, which is Zimbabwe now, I think. Right? So he died. And like early in his career, he was a freedom fighter, working for independence for his country. And he was in jail, kind of like Mandela was for, I don't know, 10 years, 10 years or so. 
And then he got out, and he wouldn't give it up. I don't think for, I think it was 40 years. He would not give up control, would not give up control. How are we like that? You know, in what areas of our life? You know? In our society, we tend to kind of look out and point the figure, finger at different people or different situations without like kind of really seeing how, that, how some of that applies to us. In, in relationship, it's like one force trying to survive, meeting another force that's trying to survive. Like, I would like the, the walls covered, colored, I would like, like this kind of lime green. But you would like it to be like kind of a dusty rose. Okay, I can say okay, but, and what Lee said was that, you know, actually when people agree, it's like two egos just agreeing, to use the physics analogy some more. It's, there's never really fusion. It's like fission uh, that happens in relationships. So, for example, what we actually have is one force being modified to create the illusion of two forces meeting. What we actually have is one force being modified to create the illusion that there's two forces meeting, and when that happens, there's fission. But here's the thing about spiritual life. I mean, a lot of us think that when that happens, there's something wrong, and we need to kind of, oh, deny that, or like pretend like it's not such a big deal and, and sublimate it in some ways. Um, but really, that is the food. That is the food. Not like you should act it out and like get into a big, you know, knockdown drag out about what color the walls should be. But it's like that. Energy is the food of transformation. That is, by the way, that's what Tantra is. That's what Tantra is. Um, the Tantra, of course, has been distorted um, in ways that, you know, like can hardly be imagined that, um, that is the topic of another talk. They're actually, in terms of spiritual life, my teacher said, there can never be a superior or inferior. You know, it might look like that completely. I mean, like among the population that I work with, their parents, you might have a woman who gets battered like 35 times, that's the average, before calling the authorities and you might say one is dominant and another is submissive. But really, you have egos. You have fission. Fission? Fission. F-I-S-S-I-O-N. Fission is like when you, when you divide an atom. Yeah. And fusion is when you combine atoms. Oh. Ego courts death. I told you, I wanted to, I mean, I really, yeah. Ego courts death. I mean, gosh, did you see that movie Solo? Maybe you've heard of it. You know, this guy climbs the face of El Capitan at Yosemite with his bare freaking hands. I mean, no, like, tools, no, like, pickaxes, no ropes, 
he goes up there on his own, like putting his little toes in these crevices, and he studied the mountain so well that he knows exactly where he's got to put everything on the way up. And then there's this one place, one crack, that is the hardest thing to get past. And you, they actually filmed this. I mean, this is like, what would you call that? Well, yeah, but I mean, to actually film this, it's like you're filming someone, you know, filming the possibility that this person is going to just die. I mean, it's like, like why? Oh, it's so sensational in some way. National Geographic gets into it, I guess. But he made it anyway. But I mean, you know, okay, and then race car drivers, you know, people talk to me about NASCAR, how they love it so much and all that. But I mean, in our own lives, Gosh, I was just in the social security office the other day. And like the people who were there, it's like they're taking up two or three chairs. They, they're killing themselves like by what they eat. And, you know, they're heavy smokers. And, and in the way that we hold on to our anger or whatever it is that happens, our emotions, not just anger, but also like, sadness or whatever. It eats at us in some way. We court death, and we said that, you know, somehow we know that if we die and we don't die, that we're okay. There's some intuition that something doesn't die. Everything relative dies. Everything but there's some intuition that something doesn't. Ego doesn't become extinct. This is kind of important to me. It's easy to, like when I read this kind of stuff, when I first got involved in spiritual life, you know, I had ideas about what this meant. You know, like you lose all individuality. You know, I thought like maybe you become a zombie. Or, like the people who have like, like for, for whom this kind of transformation has happened. And by the way, I don't think you can bring it about by yourself. I think it happens. Hey, the universe is doing all this. It's breathing us. We're not breathing. I mean, it'll happen when, whenever it happens. But we can create the conditions under which transformation can occur. We can do that by the way that we live. I'd like to talk about that a little bit, but we'll see if that's possible. <laughs> ego gets transformed. I mean, those people who have been realizers, they have had raging senses of humor. I mean, a lot of them. And they have had, like, very, very unique personalities. But what they've understood to be themselves is not just kind of this little 20 watts. Without ego, we couldn't appreciate the freedom. Without a self, without, a, you know, an ego, you know, ego is what makes us happy. Like, ego is necessary. It's part of the package. It's not something to be discarded or, like, um, have ill will toward. You have to work with. You know, that, that's a, a principle of the work, is that, you know, like we need a feminine kind of approach to it, like an accepting kind of approach of working with it. 
you know, we've all got masculine and feminine in us. Spiritual life. Oh, here's some more bad news. Oh, we may not get to the good news tonight. <laughs> Spiritual life is ego trying to win in subtle and more sophisticated ways. But, you know, like, I don't like to accept that. I don't like to consider that. But, hey, hey, we're looking to survive, and we know it's not going to work like this. It's not the new car that, you know, like there's, like, uh, 12 advertisements on uh, in between, like, parts of Stephen Colbert when I rarely get to watch this. So I don't have a TV, but that's beside the point. But, no, we don't watch anyway. But, like, you know, like all the things that are going to make it for you, when you realize that all that's not going to make it for you and you're really trying to get it, well, maybe spiritual life will. I'll, like, I'll adopt a kind of philosophy of oneness, and that'll do it. But, you know, the thing is that it's ego adopting that philosophy. And that's okay. But it's important to be ruthlessly honest. I mean, to, to see things, to see what it is. Like, not to look away. Uh, and not to judge oneself with that. Let's, you know, this is the way things work. This is the way things work. Okay. So uh, it's the dilemma. The dilemma is all of this. It's not just you and me. Like, you know, oh, I got some flaw or something. You know, it's like the dilemma is all of this. You know, we can think that we're getting somewhere, or worse, that we've gotten somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I I don't know, when people kind of sometimes kind of come and talk to me like that, you know, I have to keep an open mind because anything can happen. But when I just see a little bit too much, like, it's like, it's not worth arguing about. It's okay. I mean... Whatever you think. Okay, so what can be done? Lee says, always come back to the non-dualistic dharma. Always come back to the non-dualistic dharma. Remember God. This is it, right here. Can you see that again? Always come back to the non-dualistic dharma. Come back to here. Mm -hmm. Dharma meaning teaching. Mm -hmm. Dharma meaning teaching. So he's answering a question. I'll read one thing, and um, and I guess take questions, and we'll see about part three, or comments. Um, you know, there is no, there is only God. Is like a Westernized way of describing this. There's only God. That's like non-dualistic teaching. There's not you and God. There's only God. Okay, that's conceptual in a way, but that, it, you know, it kind of points, again, in, in a direction. So he's, he's asked a question about God. And really, please, substitute, uh, like, non-theistic language if that works for you, like the absolute or the universe or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but he says, most of us spend our lives either trying to prove there is a God or trying to prove there isn't. <laughs> When in fact, every time we wake up in the morning, it should be obvious that there is a God. But then he says, our work or sadhana, spiritual work, 
is going to be shaped by how we've understood the rhetoric or teaching. The whole idea of knowing that there is a God is a little bit shaky because we have to know what we have to know that there is God, but not that there is a God. The distinction is a lot more than simply a philosophical point. A God clearly indicates that there is something that is not God. There can be many gods in a hierarchical model with an overall aspect of only God. I mean, in the Hindu tradition, I don't know if you've ever been to India, but there are gods all over the freaking place. I mean, you know, but, you know, there are different expressions of the one. All aspects of God. There's a god of music, there's a god of, I don't know, what, there's so, so many different, huh? Dance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a god of everything. You know, and people have their chosen deity, but within the context of only God. So we want to be able to see everything that arises in terms of the fact that there is only God, not over and against the possibility that there is a God. I'm just going to run right through a dozen points that I think are things that, can, that we can do to um, prepare the ground, I mean, to kind of align with the process. Not like we're trying to attain and get anywhere, necessarily. It's already gotten. But to live truth? Yeah. I have a question. Um, the Eastern philosophy, would they subscribe love to God? I mean, God is loved in a Christian? Wow. No? Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, when one... <laughs> When one realizes one's unity with all, one lives as love. And actually, the reason why I st I'm standing up here now is because that has impacted me so strongly. There's a teacher named Yogi Ramsarat Kumara, who was my teacher's teacher, who I went to. And if you just kind of sit quietly and open, you feel what is being transmitted just by virtue of the fact of being in that state, mm -hmm. which is love. Mm -hmm. It blew me away more than any kind of confrontation to my ego. Mm -hmm. That knocked me out. Mm -hmm. What can we do? Mm -hmm. If this is the bad news, and we're kind of stuck, going round and round in our minds, identified with this. I mean, if we're honest, even if we have intuitions and at times are not in that. But primarily, that's our, our condition of ego. Like, what, what can we do to practice in a way that's aligned with the path? Just because. First of all, I, I think I do want to read this one thing. And, um, in a sense, we are like the cells of God's body. Like there's all these atoms floating around, like we're more like one of them, mm -hmm. you know, in our body. It, it, you know, as an atom is to our body, maybe we are like a cell, or, you know, an atom to God's body, right? So in a sense, I mean, this is about non-duality. In a sense, we are like the cells of God's body. God is not intelligently or consciously aware every time that a cell is suffering. But every time there is a cell that needs a particular response, there is an automatic input of the universal forces of manifestation. Whatever is necessary to respond appropriately to the aberration, 
is directed to that cell or individual from the process that is life. There is an autonomic response, and whatever is necessary to heal that self is offered and given. More bad news, God. Even a response of more suffering. Hmm. We must always bring the illusions that arise, the attempts of ego to convince us that in fact we are unique, separate individuals over against over and against other individuals, back to the non-dualistic perspective. The idea of we get what we need, that's easy to say. But when something happens that we, you know, that's, that creates more suffering for ego, we're not happy with that. But maybe that's what we need. Mm-hmm. The universe is responding to bring us into a condition of love. It just takes a freaking long time. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, our, in the way that we look at things. Mm-hmm. A couple other things. In our school, and I mention this just because I think it's useful in terms of disciplining the, uh, the, the mind. Uh, we have, there are conditions that we follow, follow. These are like conditions of practice. You know, like they're kind of a foundation. And of meditation, exercise, study, and diet. You know, I used to think that when doing them, doing that, I was doing like real spiritual practice. To me, those are the condition that kind of makes it possible to do spiritual work, to relate with things this way. When I get all like reactive and catch myself, oh, and then I can practice. Paying attention and remembering. You know, initially we, we pay attention with the ego. And so what we pay attention to is very selective. You know, we don't pay attention to the whole field. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation with someone who's really, like, surrendered. Somehow they've got this kind of field attention. And what Lee says is that in that, those kind of situations, what comes through to you is what the, what, what the universe is asking from you as opposed to when we have a very fixated kind of attention. Because, like, that's what we do, you know? Like, I'm not even aware that, like, he's there. Not that you'd be aware of everything, but what, what, you, what comes into your attention is what's needed, you know, by the universe. Remembering God is just that. The body may be hot, the emotions may be running rampant, and the mind may be clouded with stream after stream of confusing and unpleasant images. Yet in the midst of all that, remember God. That's another expression of God. Not to be discounted. We need it, actually, to refer to the statement about Tantra that I made earlier. We need to be able to transform those energies. So we need those energies to be transformed. How? Just start with self-observation and being with it it without trying to change it. And without acting it out. Intense states, oh, here's another trap. (laughs) Intense states of rapture or revelation may randomly arise as you remember God. Ecstatic. But these states cannot and should not be equated with God. It's another experience, you know, of the divine, but that is not the divine. Sometimes people get caught in looking for these, like for that kind of mystical, mystical experience. Like, and that's where they want to live forever and ever. 
nothing is forever and ever. More bad news. I mean, we try, if you try to get to some place and you think you're finally going to get there, maybe you want to think about that again. What else? Discipline? Yes. But plainly and simply, the process is feminine, and the keys to, to the lock, which imprisons reality or truth, is a feminine approach. We must get out of confusion called the mind or sleep or unconsciousness or illusion or maya, you might have heard that word, with very gentle, humorous, patient, accepting relationships to it. We can and should practice vigorously, but with bright and flexible, rigorous vigor. Inquiry. You know, one of the, this is like kind of a practice that we gave to us, which I just mentioned in case you have a time, it grabs you. Like to ask yourself at any time, who am I kidding? Like, there, there's this, like, uh, mantra that was given by this amazing sage who I forgot to mention before, Ramana Maharshi. Who am I? He would tell people to repeat that, to, to ask themselves that question. He said, who am I kidding? In his uniquely Western sense of humor, in a way, but he wasn't kidding about it. In every moment of consciousness, we are kidding something. But we don't know it. We don't know it. You know, and we tend to use inquiry, who am I kidding, when something bad happens. Like, or if I get, like, express some negative emotion. Like, you know, I'm angry or I'm jealous. But, but the thing about, like, inquiry is that you have to use inquiry about positive things, too. Because ego creates all kinds of positive experiences as well as negative experiences. So we think, oh, I'm just going to use it when I get jealous or angry or rageful. Um, no, you have to use it when... Everything's kind of cool. Things are going good, and you just got a promotion or whatever. Um, who am I kidding? Service. Okay. Enough. Enough said. Um, I mean, serving somebody else other than you. I mean, I serve when it's convenient for me. What about when it's not convenient for me? You know, he says, we all have things to do, and we should never be too consumed to stop for a small moment or even a large moment, and provide what is wanted and need, needed in the way of genuine service to act when needed. Mm -hmm. I am practicing with this. I'm practicing with this. I think it's a good thing to practice with. These are things that I think you can do mm -hmm. to like kind of align with spiritual teaching. Mm -hmm. The results of practice, you won't like this either. The results of practice show up in groups. He says, which is why I work with groups of people. Meditating alone out in the jungle, or just kind of alone on, on your own and maybe go to a meeting once in a while, has, severe, has very severe limitations, which is one of the reasons that Sangha, or a, a group of practitioners, is such a major aspect of our work. Because when you work with people, th things get triggered that don't get triggered in other ways for you. And you kind of get this, oh, you think, oh, I'm all cool and like that, but then when you kind of have to deal with stuff of other, with other people, more stuff comes up. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. It's actually, a, it's really a good thing. Better to kind of, you know, be in touch with that than to kind of think that you're beyond it. Last thing. Advaita Vedanta non-duality is not about knowledge. 
because there's nothing to know. It's about removing the veils of ignorance that keep us from knowing that there's nothing to know. What veils? It's about removing the veils of ignorance that keep us from knowing that there is nothing to know. There's nothing? To know. To know. Like I've got all this, like I've just t- like talked for an hour and like it's almost 40 minutes. I'd like to start at, stop after an hour and a half, but I, I didn't tonight because I wanted to say these things. But all that. <laughs> <laughs> but it points in a direction, so I think it can be useful. Now the last thing. Cultivate the view about that. Cultivate the view that everything is in transit. Oh, I'm working with this too. Everything changes, and change itself has its own cathartic effect. It's the law. That is how the universe work, works. More bad news. I'm sorry we didn't get to the good news. <laughs> if you were really afraid of death, this fear itself would be an extremely intense motivating factor. You'd realize that you need to live your life as fully as long as there is life. Then it all becomes incredibly inspiring. It's very bittersweet, the spiritual path. I so much appreciate your attention. I can't tell you. I mean, you know, like to me, to kind of, I don't know, you know, have a, a, a forum to be able to kind of talk about things that are, you know, deeply meaningful to me. And, you know, to kind of express that is uh, very useful. So I, I, you know, and I hope there's something useful in it for you too.